a esta mandona con su voz gringa. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Maria Cecilia Reyes. Maria Cecilia, it's a great pleasure to see you, uh, albeit at some distance. You look as though you're in a library or an archive or something. It's a working space, a co-working space ah. that has some storage. Okay, excellent. <laughs> I like those sorts of places. Now, if we could begin, if you could tell us a little bit about what's on your mind at the moment slash what you're working on. Well, I'm, uh, I'm still working at Interactive Digital Narratives, um, at uh, Immersion, at uh, Interactivity, and now thinking about these new headsets and like the the context of the different uh, companies in this race for spatial compute, computing and um, immersion or this con constant state of immersion. So I'm thinking about that. I'm working about on that, but also thinking um, on this landscape from a critical point of view. So with my students, we started to work on a uh, decolonized framework for analyzing uh, immersive and interactive experiences. So how this metaverse that everybody's talking about, and then we can talk about this concept, uh, can could become a pluriverse in, in a way too. So a bit like the, some of the ideas of Arturo Escobar uh, and some of his collaborators, uh, including in, indigenous folks in Colombia, uh, in terms of rethinking um, the unifocality of these dominant colonial perspectives. When you refer to this big contest as to who will win, a couple of the players are Apple and Meta, right? I think. And I yeah. guess... We have we have Apple now. They they just um, joined the the race this year, a couple of months ago, with the launching of a, a new device, the Apple Vision Pro. But then before that, we already have uh, Microsoft, uh, Google, or, or Alphabet, and and Meta. And Meta has been the the runner up in this race towards immersion. Yeah. And it's the same old crew in a way, isn't it? The white technology companies and yes. their power not only over innovation, but more importantly, distribution, which mm -hmm. is the, yeah. the great thing that they have with their domination of the cloud. Of course, you look at this through two perspectives, at least. One is as a filmmaker utilizing new technologies and the other is as a scholar, although they're not completely separate. And there's a third perspective, which is as a Colombian woman. So I wonder, and there are probably others, but they're just three to start with. I wondered if you could share with us a little bit about your work as a filmmaker, as a scholar, and as a Colombian woman. Yeah, well, I I started to um, be interested in this uh, space of uh, immersive technologies around uh, 2014 in that moment there was a big uh, boom um, yeah around uh, the headsets and the, also the cameras the 360 degree cameras and um, in that moment uh, yeah the cameras became cheaper so and also the software to create 360 degree video content and for filmmakers people that uh, we're working with traditional film or traditional video making. This was uh, an opportunity to explore with new technologies, and I was one of these of these people. So yeah, my background is in filmmaking, and uh, um, in that period of time, uh, I was starting my PhD uh, research, and I was working on a different, completely different project. But then uh, I became aware of these new cameras, and I wanted to understand how the audiovisual language would change in an immersive environment and like where, where were the possibilities of 360 degree video, which I still think, I, I thought it at the time, I, I still think is limited in a way because we feel immersed, but, but we're not 
actually interacting with the environment. And I think that's important when we are in a, in a virtual uh, environment to be able to interact and to be ourselves. And the cinematic VR, what they, they call um, 360-degree video, is, is limited in that sense of interactivity. So yeah, as a filmmaker, uh, I saw the potential and just you know the need and the curiosity of exploring, of using new, a new medium. Um, and and then as a scholar, uh, I I was um, I wondered like how the communication act changes and how the reception, the aesthetic experience also changes uh, by being immersed with by being inside the the audiovisual uh, image and not having it framed in front of us like we are used to in our screens, in the cinema, um, in our phones, computers, televisions. So yeah, that by creating also uh, an interactive immersive film, I could explore the, the materiality and the possibilities of uh, cinematic VR and how to make it a bit more interactive. And, and through that creation, I could also understand a deeper um, issues about virtual reality as a medium and now like what we call extended reality we include also uh, mixed reality and augmented reality um, and how our perception and our way of being in the world changes in an artificial experience so that has been uh, my my work as a creator and researcher and as a colombian woman um that's also uh, very important like, in our conversations during my research work um, because, well, uh, disclaimer, Tommy was my uh, thesis advisor. Um, you were very um, critical and reminding me to, um, to inquire about who are the owners of this technology, who's, who's making the, the rules and for, to enter in the race, and who's allowing uh, people to access the technology, the hardware, but and also the software, and who's distributing uh, these kind of experiences. So there you can see how like there, there is this uh, gap between um, you know the global north countries that have more access to the technology rather in the in the global south. But at the same time, I feel that here, for example, in Colombia, there is a lot of curiosity and creativity and uh, um, fire to uh, just play with the with the instrument. In general, I think that in the world there hasn't been a great uh, interest uh, yet or a mass adoption of the technology. Even though we have been talking about virtual reality headsets in the in this third wave virtual reality um, since uh, more more than ten years now, and still the technology hasn't been uh, ad- adopted by by the mass uh, consumption and there are some reasons for that but even though i think that uh, our our young mindset here in colombia for example uh pushes us to to play around and to create uh stories and immersive experiences that might i don't know connect us with some ancestral forms of uh, seeing the world or just to um, tell our daily life stories. Um, so, do you think? Yeah, this... I also. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, please go ahead. No, and just another thing, like about being a woman, it's interesting that, like, in this uh, community of people um, creating for for immersive technologies, there is a, a big group of women artists that are interested in in immersive technologies. Especially in storytelling, for for yeah, for immersive experiences, and it's it's interesting how um, like you know the the female view of the world has been um, penetrating the this landscape, this this space. Like we have, I think that we have the opportunity to create new a new space where society can. Development when where individual individuals can meet and study and entertain themselves themselves and meet other people and work and I feel that the fact that 
so many women are interested in this world. It's like, you know, we have like some kind of uh, dream of creating a new space from scratch and uh, in, a, in a different in a different way. And you say that while at the same time, paradoxically, referring to perhaps an interest in connecting with ancestral norms. And I wanted to ask you whether some of this may also connect in terms of the desire for an immersive reality and fantasy that are new to the conflict, to the fact that basically everybody who's alive in Colombia has experienced the conflict. Most people at at least at second hand and millions of you at first hand. Is there something there about wanting to explore alternative realities because of the horror of the conflict? I see I, I see two ways. One is to create memory about uh, the conflict and the suffering. There is this um, assumption or um, this idea that has been spread since this the beginning of this third wave of VR, that is that VR is an empathy machine. Um, this phrase comes from Chris Mill. Uh, he's an um, entrepreneur of uh, VR, uh, immersive technologies. And I mean, we can talk about that. Like there are some uh, scholars that agree and others that don't agree much. But um, there, the, the reality is that when you are immersed uh, in in your perception is um, yeah all surrounded by by audiovisual stimuli stimuli and then you forget where you are physically um, you you get closer to what you're seeing in that virtual space so yes there is a um, a potential for creating empathy and for putting people other people in your shoes so in that sense I think that yeah, there is a, a strong power of immersive technologies in, in um, creating memory about conflict and suffering and pain uh, that we have had. But on the other hand, in this, this uh, more pessimistic view, I think that um, immersive technologies also have uh, the power to keep the feeling to preserve the feeling, the experience of being in a specific place that we might lose because of war, because of conflict. So, what if we have, uh, we, I don't know, like, may, we all know that the Amazon rainforest is in danger, right? And what if we now we make an effort to, to record the experience of being surrounded by the Amazon uh, jungle before, I don't know, war or um, you know, deforestation or um, narco cultivations or crops uh, will um, erase the Amazon jungle or um, cultural heritage sites. Like if we see what happened in Syria, for example, so many examples that we have lost and we won't ever experience again. So I think that it's important to to capture that experience in a 360 um, environment, because then we can explore it from from within, and not just seeing it on a on a screen or a pictures or um, moving image, you know. But that it's framed, but we can actually be surrounded. So yeah, like in a storytelling level, we can create that empathy of, around the stories and the narratives um, of the conflict and war and pain, um, and maybe to um, try to create that empathy with the with, with whoever is going to experience that storytelling from from inside and on the other hand we can also preserve preserve the experience or of, of being in a in a place that might be in danger or might disappear because of war I asked this in part because after all my years living in the United States and also now living in Spain I'm very aware of what can happen over well over a century in one case and 80 years in another, of trying to forget the horror of civil war without properly dealing with it, dealing with its causes and dealing with its effects. The US civil war still bestrides US politics every day. 
And here in Spain, good grief, as you know, the civil war truly never ended. Uh, you know, in Argentina, we now have a vice president who says that, and who is a child of a dictatorship from the 70s and 80s, who basically says, you know, what well, there's no story to tell there. So I, I, I think that finding ways of making those stories real for people is incredibly important. And the same with the environmental crisis that you so aptly mentioned. Getting back to the issue of femininity or, or womanhood in all of this, in most of the countries that I know about, women are much bigger readers than are men. They do more reading and they read a lot more fiction, a lot more fantasy fiction, a lot of feminism within science fiction, as you know, but basically all genres, you know, noir genres, hard-boiled, romance. You can name the genre of fiction. And the chances are that three quarters of the readership will be women. And this has always interested me because there's something there about wanting to move into a different world from the one you occupy. Yeah? Yes, totally agree. Uh, I this, this conception of possible worlds that is already acknowledged by narratology and by narratologists um now we and that has yeah attracted so so many women i think that is connected to the that desire of living and creating as well new realities new new worlds in which we can be and we in which the the rules can be different um and this this theory of the possible worlds uh now is materialized by immersive technology so these worlds that we can in, immerse uh, through reading, through watching a movie, going to theater. Now we can uh, wear a headset and, I don't know, computer clothes, you know, like uh, gloves and other interfaces and actually experience those other worlds. But in that sense, like what kind of worlds we want to create? And I, I see, I feel that the fact that uh, women, we, uh, we, yeah, we, we, we take care uh, we are very conscious about the ethical implications of putting an interactor, a user, or a player, uh, and a spectator inside uh, an immersive uh, world, and and create a pleasant, a pleasant uh, story and uh, a transformative experience at the end that goes beyond playing a game or uh, work or um, yeah have a uh, an entertainment moment in which you can shoot the zombies or something like that you know and I think that what I've seen from from women creators uh, creating uh, immersive experiences is is actually look for that transformative um, element at the end. I wonder if we could go back for a moment to your filmmaking work and you could tell listeners a wee bit about the film project that was adjunctive, as it were, to your doctorate? Yeah. Um, so I was uh, working as a filmmaker uh, mostly for documentaries. So uh, in traditional filmmaking. <laughs> so I, I made a first documentary about um, an Italian village um, of old people that were the only ones that remained in that village because during the 60s and 70s, so many youngsters, uh, young people left and moved to the cities for the uh, this industrial revolution uh, that happened in Italy in that time. And the, the little towns in the mountains um, lost a lot of their population. So that was the first documentary. Then I, I went to the Amazon jungle and uh, worked with a community called Sarayaku, they are defending their territory from extractivism, and um, but using technology, using uh, a satellite internet, and they have a very strong uh, need to preserve their uh, their wisdom, but at the, at the same time not get behind from what happening, what's happening in the world in terms of technology and creation as, as well. And and then I also had the opportunity of working in a documentary about a Lithuanian artist, artist had escaped Second World War and came to Colombia. And she 
had uh, had a song that became very famous and important for this country, which is Antanas Mokus. And the story is about, about her um, as, a, as an artist. And uh, her name is Nijole. And when I started the PhD and discovering the, the possibilities of cinematic virtual reality, um, I, I felt that I needed to, to move to fiction uh, because in connection with that, uh, creating possible worlds. Uh, I wanted to create possible worlds and alternative worlds. And I think that VR has that that potential of, um, yeah, take take us away, literally, that really encapsulate our cognitive um, capacity, vision and hearing and other uh, senses as well. So uh, during the the research, I I... I worked on um, an interactive and immersive movie uh, based on an interactive fiction structure. So interactive fiction is nothing new. We can see it already in Cortázar, Rayuela, and many movies. Um, So, um, yeah, saying Borges Borges in the Labyrinth of um, Working Paths, um, the Garden of Working Paths, he already acknowledges this uh, possibility of creating different Paths in 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 storytelling, but also in life. And in life, we are making all time decisions that take us in a single path because of the linearity of time that we cannot escape. But how if we can escape it in in this possible possible worlds or immersive worlds? So I integrated the cinematic VR with the uh, interactive fiction structure, so uh, people would be immersed. But as I was ma- mentioning before, 360-degree video is very limited. You cannot interact with the environment. So how to uh, include or incorporate some some moments of interaction for people to to have more agency in that in that immersive environment? So in you are in the scene, and in some moments you can choose if you want to listen the the advice, or follow the advice of one, one character, or um, get through that door, or uh, it was shot in Genova, which is a labyrinth. Uh, the, the historical center is a labyrinth uh, to keep pirates away. So maybe I take this path or this other um, alley to to escape. So um, yeah, it's uh, it's this this integration between an interactive fiction structure and and an immersive setting. And is there a way in which people could gain access to the documentaries in the first place, and if they have the right equipment, the interactive project? Well, for the movies, yes. Um, You can go to my website or write me an email. I can, I don't know uh, uh, how to, maybe I can give you the links uh, so uh, people can just um, go to my website and you can find their one movie is completely available online and the other two I can I can provide access um, to them. And uh, for the interactive immersive film, the, there is a more sad story. So it, when I built it, it wasn't future proof. So um, very quickly, the headset that I made it for was replaced very, very quickly, like in the in the arc of one year. Uh, the the headset was was replaced and the software that I used to create the project was also wasn't future proof uh, was um, I mean it's a it's a, a private company software so they change and then we can talk again about the the uh, uh, economia politica the the VR again, but in in general of the technological landscape. So it's a private company that has a software and they decided to change the scope and the, actually the business model of the the software. So um, yeah, I I cannot update that project, how it was built in that time for newer headsets. So now, actually, if somebody is listening to this and knows uh, Unity and Unreal engines, which are like uh, more powerful softwares and uh, hopefully future-proof, and wants to 
help me to bring it back to life. Um, just can write, can write my email and, and, and work with me on that. These um, newer software are um, more complex, but I have all the material and all the design to recreate it and, and do it again for, uh, and hopefully uh, future in a fu- future-proof manner. Yes, these things happen so often. One version of the story is that the little company with its proprietary software gets bought by a big company that doesn't actually want to keep using the software. It wants to stop another big company from getting hold of it. This happens a lot with electronic games, as you know. There are lots of, and then other versions are that the company just goes bust or whatever it is. But this is such a big problem. I can't have access to my doctorate or the book that it was that it then produced i just don't have an, a means of opening the files for example yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it's a minor thing but sometimes a bit sad because i don't have a hard copy of the thesis or the book and i quite like to know what they were about uh, <laughs> but enough of my yeah. sob stories um i i appreciate your your telling that tale it's exciting to learn that you're getting some help in order to retrieve this work. I was lucky enough to have seen it, <laughs> to have been very struck by it and enjoyed it. Getting back to the academic stuff, if one can separate these things, and I realise that in many ways they're integrated, but you're also a professor. Could you tell us about what that's like and where you're being a professor and so on? Well, from this year, um, teaching at Universidad del Norte in Barranquilla is my hometown, my alma mater, with, where I studied communication um, and journalism some, some years ago. <laughs> and also, I did the, uh, a double degree program with Uni- University of Genoa, where I started my PhD uh, research uh, in digital humanities with the communication uh, PhD program of Universidad del Norte. Uh, and that was a, a great opportunity to have, uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, two universities um, working and supporting uh, the research with great uh, advisors as well. Um, and so, yeah, this this year I've been teaching at Universidad del Norte, but in the previous years I had the opportunity to to give some lectures and to work in uh, in Sweden at uh, half the University of Hofde, which is a little town in in Sweden. Uh, I had the chance also to, to teach at University of Genova in Italy at the Masters of Creating Creative Writing and, and Digital uh, Design. And um, this year I've been working well to have the opportunity to work with a new generation of uh, Barranquilla. Uh, um yeah young people uh has been very interesting to to reconnect with uh with uh, my culture and ha- and to see how the culture has changed in these uh 10 12 years that I've been away from Shakira the returns <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> the Shakira of yeah. video technology <laughs> yeah of course uh, uh, also una barranquillera but in, in all seriousness, so often in Latin America, people working in relatively new disciplines like communications actually have to go abroad to do PhDs. So in Mexico, for decades, there was no PhD in communications. In Colombia, there was no PhD in communications until Uninortes, only a little over a decade ago. And I think it's fantastic, really, really important that you get a chance or you took the opportunity, you made the opportunity to spend time in the global north and then to come back, but not to come back with the gift of real knowledge, but rather with a critical optic, both feminist and global south optics, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it is a critical uh, view, but also a very optimistic one because I think that the youth in in Barranquilla specifically, but we can I, I think we can extend to to, to Colombia and, and it's very different from the youth in 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 Europe and uh, the way of teaching the way of learning is also different and 
and I see so much potential and and this this fire, this desire to do to do more and to create and to experiment and not being afraid to experiment. And also the I mean something <laughs> I don't know how to say it so it doesn't sound too bad, but like, you know, we learn also how to be uh resourceful, to make uh, a lot with uh, with 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 little or or to be very creative about finding solutions well, and you you remember Marta Milena Barrios who yes. was a professor there. Marta Milena once said to me, and she was a journalist and her husband's a journalist and a news anchor, that this making do with things like a bricolage was something that Colombians had and it affected the way the narcos operated, the way that the guerrilla operated, the way that la gente popular operated. Everybody has a way of getting around problems. Yes. Even ser un vivo. Is, is adjust to what you have to make do with. Is that what you're getting at? Too? Yeah, so, yeah. To, to not, yeah, totally. To not be being um, stopped by by obstacles. If you find an obstacle or you're lacking something, you will find a way to do it, to do what you want uh, to do anyway. There's also that great Colombian expression, uh, more or less translates as, when they make the law, they also make a workaround. So, yes, I think that is very exciting. And I must say, I've found very, very dynamic the difference between my experience in Mexico teaching uh, people from the popular classes, indigenous people, utterly cathected onto study, incredibly respectful of learning, versus the lower middle class, working class children in Spain that I'm teaching who just don't care and are, are not invested or at least don't appear to be in the same way. And I've asked them about this and asked them to help me to so I can make things happen for them in the way they want. And they're not even interested enough to give feedback. Whereas my experience in Barranquilla, in Cartagena de Indias, and in La Ciudad de Mexico, is that people are so dynamically involved in their education. Again, these are huge generalizations, but I think what you've suggested is that our experiences are rather similar. Yeah, thank you for, for vocalizing that. Uh, um, I I totally totally agree. I, um, I also had the, the chance to have a, a guest professor this year in, in the Norte. He's uh, from UK. And teaches also in the in the Baltics, in Estonia and Latvia, and he was uh, astonished by the, the this willingness and of doing stuff, of keep doing every day and being attentive to classes and being responsive and being creative of 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 the students uh, which um, that participated in the workshop that he led and. Uh, he was saying like this wouldn't, I mean, would have happened but, like in a very different way with the with the uh, Baltic or or English uh, students that you know when you make maybe ask questions for feedback, there is maybe one one hand uh, raising and and here you know everybody wants to to chat and to uh, discuss and to to do. So I don't know what what are the reasons, but I also as a student uh, in in Italy, I also saw it. The difference between me and my my classmates, and uh, I think the professors, my professors in Italy, Italians, um, they also noticed that, and uh, I was the student to to go through to 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 help with with projects uh, because of that um, being used to do to do stuff all, all all the time. It's a some sort of unresolved trauma. I sometimes associate a little bit with COVID-19 and it's being somewhat generational. So people who may have had their later high school years traumatized and their educational opportunities stalled, their sense of what a college experience would be ruined. I think all these things may have an impact on some people of this particular generation. But... <laughs> It wasn't happening. I was in Mexico, living in Mexico for the first two waves of COVID-19 after I left Cartagena. And, you know, people were literally, you know, of course, no one has Wi-Fi. No one has a laptop. They're living with their families. 
nine people in three rooms, 20% of the parents died. The students are there with black market oxygen tanks to keep them alive while they're participating. They do the reading. They come up with inventive ideas. They question. It was just so extraordinary. So they had a way of bringing, because the trauma was so close to them, it was happening to their bodies and those around them, of bringing that into the classroom in incredibly creative ways. Maybe this attitude here of, you know, people just saying, oh, it's nothing, it was just the past, uh, is a bit like denying the reality of a civil war. Anyway, enough of my amateur psychologizing. You're you're nodding in a very kind way. But just uh, keeping going on this academic track, so you also publish written work, both scholarly and, and not just scholarly. Could you tell us a little bit uh, about that, please, Maria Cecilia? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, um, scholarly, I will be published soon uh, uh, a book uh, that uh, reflects the, uh, my, my research for my PhD work. Um, the book is titled Interactive Fiction in Cinematic VR Towards the Immersive Interactive right. Movie. Um, is uh, published by an Italian um, editorial house, uh, Mimesis International. So um, I will let you know as soon as it's available. But I think if you Google, uh, it's already uh, in pre-sale um, somewhere. So uh, that's Interactive Fiction Cinematic VR. And uh, I also um, work in an edited collection of interactive digital narratives that were presented at the art exhibition of the conference on interactive digital storytelling of 2020 uh, together with professor jim pope from from uk um it's a it's a book that that collects um the experiences of creation of uh several interactive digital storytelling artworks by artists of around the world so um uh, you can find it. The, the title is Texts of Discomfort. Uh, that was the curatorial theme of that year that we selected. We chose that theme before knowing anything about uh, what was going to happen in 2020. Uh, but it was perfect, perfect title for, for those times. Um, so, yeah, you can find Texts of Discomfort. It was published by uh, APC Carnegie Mellon, uh, APC Press. Uh, it's completely free to, to download. Uh, so that's another work. Um, and um, for for Italian um, um, speakers, uh, there is also another book uh, written with uh, two other colleagues from the um, National Research Council of Italy about how to create interactive MOOCs, massive online open courses. That's um, that was published in Italy uh, in 2021. So those are the scholarly books. Uh, that are uh, out there or soon to be out there, <laughs> and not scholarly. I had um, I haven't published the book uh, as it, but like some some chapters and some ideas here and there. So one of those is um, is in Spanish in the Cuadernos eh, Cuadernos de Cine Colombiano eh, número 32 uh, from from 2022, um, and the, the this edition was focused on new narratives, hybrid interactive uh, immersive narratives. And, and my contribution is titled uh, Towards Immersiography or for, from Cinematography to, Towards an Immersiography. We can, if we can call it that way, we are in the way of creating a, a way of writing immersion for immersive technology. So that's like a, a conceptual proposal that is out there for people to to maybe follow up if, if it makes sense I, I don't know um, and that that's in Spanish and I also had the chance to publish some collaboration poetry uh, collaborative poetry with AI in also an AI anthology um, edited uh, created by um, um, Jeff I, I just forgot his his full name Jeff Davis also from UK, uh, there is um, an anthology of um, poems co-created with AI, and one of them is 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 mine. And um, and yeah, and there is some some storytelling somewhere. Uh, also, a, a story that I, I I wrote many years ago, and 
and that had the, the chance to be published in a, also a collection of um, stories written in Italian by foreigner uh, women. And this collection is called Lingua Madre. So one of my, my tales is, is published there. You're an astonishingly creative person in so many ways and astonishingly productive. I had a couple of questions, brief ones, if I may. And then after that, I wanted to give you the opportunity to mention anything that we haven't touched on that you would like us to discuss or anything that we did mention that you'd like to add to. So my first question is, when you're teaching filmmaking, do you think there's a place for people, for example, learning the continuity system, classical Hollywood, or conventional news and current affairs television, storytelling, alongside newer optics, newer ways of immersion? Or is it better to jump right in, in ways that are not coloured so much by the classic continuity system rules? It's a great question. I think that we need to be aware and we need to know the audiovisual language, the traditional one, and the different uh, semantic um, load that each frame and each um, yeah, selection that we do as creators of what part of reality I'm framing with the camera. If I want to a close-up, if I am choosing a, a full shot, a extreme wide shot, why is that? So each each frame has, each shot has a, has a meaning, has a meaning. Um, so I think we need, we need to know that because then when we go to the immersive um, uh, audiovisual language, we go from the sphere with the, the, the sorry, the, the frame disappears to now we move in a sphere and we, we draw a sphere and that sphere has has a segmentation. And we need to know um, what's the field of vision, what's the distance of vision so we can locate our elements, our characters, our uh, points of interest in that, in that sphere. But we also need to remember that even in immersive environments, we as humans, we organically frame reality. We are choosing what to see all the time. And if you bring your hands around your 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 head, you won't see them because like the field of vision of natural human vision is is limited. And then you need to move your head around and you need to turn back. So we are framing organically. So uh, to know that that frame uh, metric, let's say, from traditional audiovisual works, and then to move towards immersive work. I think that's uh, that's that's key. That's that's important to know that parallelism. And then in terms of storytelling, I think that uh, an appealing storytelling, an appealing story, uh, has some some components that belong from traditional, from oral storytelling, from the old storytelling. So in that sense, it really doesn't change. And in that sense, we need to go back. Oh, I think I'm gonna move. Space. Let's see if I have. Sorry, I had to cut the flow, but a lot of people just arrived to my seat. Um, so yeah, so in terms of a storytelling, we we need to know the basics of storytelling, where the element that will um, connect us and keep our our curiosity and our uh, attention in that story, and then. How to tell a, a good story? Yeah, there is something about emotion. There is something about connection uh, with with the characters, about complexity. Um, that it doesn't matter if you're telling an, an oral story, if you're writing a novel, if you're making a film, a ra- radio show, a theater play. At the end, it's the same. That's a wonderful answer. So my last question draws on your sharing with us that you've had experience writing poetry with artificial intelligence. I wanted to ask your view of the current panic among poets, artists, filmmakers, writers in general about artificial intelligence. 
Oh, that's yeah. Um, so I, I think technology uh, technology is developed to initially. <laughs> then we can also start like going through the uh, political economy of it. But um, in 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 the in the beginning, or like, the main idea of technology is to to help humanity and to be a tool for humanity. So if we see artificial intelligence as that, and if we connect to uh, McLuhan idea of the extensions of, of man, and if we see artificial intelligence as an extension of the brain, for example, uh, well, it's, it's great to have you know helpers that can allow us to uh, maybe get rid of boring tasks and, and liberate our time and free our time to do more creative or critical tasks that a machine cannot do. Or if a machine can do, you know, like, um, uh, yeah, mechanical, tedious uh, tasks that some people is paid now, like very little money an hour. And, uh, and, and we can use that time to, to develop more, more synapses and different ways of uh, creating any, any kind of artifact, whatever it is, uh, designing or solving problems in a human way, I, I think that that's welcome. Um, so I think that as a technology, we'll just open new ways of doing stuff. And in if we talk about creative people, um, I, I really don't think that uh, artificial intelligence will replace create creativity and, and human emotion. Um, it can help us to maybe find connections or to uh, create different kinds of materiality of our artwork or uh, to find better works. But um, for example, uh, some students made an a very interesting experiment based on some research that we have been doing on, on filmmaking with AI. So we took, uh, we select different AI um, May produced short films, and each short film has a different level of AI involved. So some of them were created from, with AI from um, script, uh, shot list, and then each shot, and then the animation, and then uh, the narrator, the voice, voice of the narrator, both the written text and the voice. Uh, others are a mix between human and AI. Anyway, different kind of levels of, of stories. We watch all these, all these short films, and then they decided to make an experiment and to create a short film with AI. And the same short film has a, narrate, a human narrator, a voiceover that is human, and a voiceover that is AI. And then they gave this, uh, they made some focal groups uh, to, to see which of the two voices people would prefer. Uh, and like without knowing and using very compelling and very not not noticeable AI voices, uh, people still found a different warmth and a different emotion in the human voice. Um, and or also when we watch all these, like I don't know, around 20 short films, people were saying my favorite was this one, and actually that one was the only one that was narrated by a human voice. Uh, instead of a, an AI voice. So there was something hidden, something very subtle, very, um, that yeah, maybe you cannot even notice, but that, that was there and that uh, gave a different energy to, to the work. So I think that now uh, our, as creative, we, we will have to develop new, a new set of, of skills, um, of especially in curation. We know um, we know what 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 works for our work. Uh, how, what of these frames? What of these animations? What of these uh, uh, AI generated images or voices or music can integrate our vision, our work? Um, yeah. So I think that we will develop uh, new ways to to communicate with the machines. We we will use them definitely. Um, and we will be able to to select and curate what what we want from them and 
keeping in mind that the meaning making is ours. So like as humans, we are the ones like making, giving meaning and giving, um, um, yeah, the uh, pragmatic sense of, of whatever the, the AI is producing for us. Thank you so much. Are there things you would like to add to what we've already recorded? Apart from, you know, world peace, end of patriarchy, few things like that. <laughs> um, well, I, I recently was confronted by a, a colleague about uh, my research field and about immersion and virtual reality and artificial intelligence and um, like, why do you like that stuff? You know, like it's like getting us away from or getting you away from uh, art and, and what you should be doing, which is writing stories and writing poetry and not being, uh, uh, you know, involved in the technology that is like dehumanizing us. And then uh, that like um, really had, had me thinking uh, on, on, um, on technology in general and and yeah the role of technology in our daily lives and seeing people like all the time with their with the heads down looking at their phones on streets or students in classrooms or uh, people in parks so um how can we I think that there is a question that is important for me. It's like, how can we, yes, use technology, uh, put technology in, in to the service of humanity, but at the same time, um, how to uh, remind ourselves to stay human. I mean, I know that it sounds like, you know, like a, a catchphrase from, from a shop, but like, uh, I'm, I'm really worried about us being living in cyberspace or in the metaverse or, in, in other spaces and sometimes not take um, time to be away from from screens and from whatever is happening in that other uh, world and just stay grounded and connected with, with nature around and nature inside. E.M. Forster, only connect. <laughs> well, Maria Cecilia Reyes, muchísimas gracias. It was wonderful apart from anything else, to see you and to talk to you after a very long time. And I would like to extract, if I may, talk, you mentioned extractivism. I would like extract, to extract a promise from you to return to the pod, if you would, when and if your interactive film becomes available again and when your next book comes out. Might that be feasible? Of course, of course, I would love to. As soon as, yeah, I manage to have someone that will... Uh, join in this effort to to bring back uh, uh, interactive immersive movies back to life. Uh, that I uh, I would love to to talk about that process too. Many many thanks.